This episode is brought to you by Outdoor Class. Outdoor Class is an online video platform geared towards making you a better hunter. Watch instructional videos taught by hunting experts like Remy Warren, Randy Newberg, and Corey Jacobson. After the hunt, learn how to prepare your harvest from world-class wild game chefs like Hank Shaw and Jamie Tagan. Whether it's your first year hunting or you grew up doing it, Outdoor Class will take your skills up a notch. Use code EMPIRE20 at checkout to save 20% off. Visit OutdoorClass.com to learn more. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast, the Ohio Outdoors Podcast. Paul and Andrew are here tonight to get you caught up with what's going around the state. Paul, what's up, dude? Your new office looks very nice there. I like. Thank you, man. I like the camo. Thank you. I'm, walls. The camo walls. My wife did a did a great job painting the camo. Wall. I got the camo like just a flat matte green behind me, and I got some sound panels up here. My sound's been kind of weird, so yeah, man. I'm trying to. Uh, Trying to step the game up. My, my office was just chaotic. So it, uh, yeah, it's come together nice. So it's been, been, been a good project. Got some, some pictures to hang up. I was starting to tell you before we, we were recorded, but I have this like obsession, not, not an obsession, just a minor hobby. I like to collect like old wildlife memorabilia. And one of the things that, that uh, the state used to do, and I, th- I think a lot of states did this, but they would do a, a map of the hunting areas. Uh, for for the state and so it was all the public hunting areas public water waterways uh, boating access and so i've got a couple of those the oldest one that i've able to been to to come across uh, and hopefully i'll be able to hang it up behind me was from 1929 and so it's pretty cool it's freaking sweet i'm not gonna lie i can't open it though because it's so old and it was in like it must have been like in a book or something the edges are so flat either like they're sharp so i don't know it's cool i can't wait to get that thing open but yeah i got a lot of a lot of stuff, old wildlife signs and stuff like that. Hopefully, hang up in the office here, and I don't know, man. Make it's it good, uh, dude. Looking the O2 good. podcast, O2 podcast studio. So there you go. So you you are on the board again, man. You killing you do it. Certified doe killer here, Andrew Mons. We're gonna get into that right now. Yeah, do it. Heck yeah, man. Let's go. All right. So um, I went out a couple times this weekend. It was warm. Uh, the first night I went out to public land. Uh, I don't really have much to report from there. There's just a couple things. You know, I, I do most of my my uh, hunting on private land, but I do like to go out and explore new areas and that kind of stuff. So one thing I noticed was I got out of my truck, parked. Uh, actually, you and I had been down there turkey hunting earlier in the year, so mm-hmm. I was like, what the heck? We'll go down there. Um, it's a good area. I didn't even get one foot into the woods, and I jumped, jumped deer. I couldn't tell you how oh, many geez. or what, but... That whole idea that they sit there at the trailhead and wait for people and watch, <laughs> I'm I can I can verify that. You can't uh, argue it right no. against it. And uh definitely deer though, because of the way they were jumping off and um so that was uh, the one way to start. The other thing I thought was really interesting, where I I was running out of time, uh, by the time I got down there after soccer and flag football and stuff. Um so I did not do any, you know, super manly 10 mile hike into the woods like i was a couple hundred yards off of uh off the road and and whatever which i've had success in in situations like that before but i could hear cars going by right and i'm back in there in the state forest 
And I hear cars go by. They go up to where my truck was parked. They turn around and a lot of them come back. But I, I have this like sinking suspicion. It's perhaps it's my lack of uh, confidence in society that I'm going to come out and my truck is going to be sitting on cinder blocks. Uh, so I'm like <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I'm sitting up there like trying to tell how long are these cars back there. Uh, luckily, I came out. I did not have car. Uh, you hear you hear like an air like like I'm watching NASCAR. Um, so that was uneventful. It was uh, I dropped an arrow from the tree that night. Uh, yeah, whatever. So, but the next morning I got up and I don't know. Uh, with the warmer weather, I we and I talked about it the other day. I've just seen more activity from cameras um, in the morning when it's when it's cooler. So. I, uh, I hopped in the truck, went for a ride there Sunday morning. Um, one of the pieces I hunt that's you know a good decent distance away, but I got down there and I'm I'm trying to think. I, I always jump deer uh, when I'm going in. Perhaps that's bad access, but I don't really have a ton of options in this one. Um, and they where I jumped them was plenty far away from where I was going to set up. I got up in the tree. That area when i get them on camera i've had them on camera like all hours of the day 10 o'clock in the morning seven o'clock in the morning two o'clock in the afternoon like it's just it's very close to the bedding so um there's also a lot of fox squirrels so and i love that challenge of shooting squirrels i've actually i think i've killed more squirrels in my life with a bow than i have deer but (laughs) which is stupid and makes no sense the I'm I'm trying to think <laughs> how this all went because I was texting that group the well go wild group text during that. Uh, I know I had to pee at one point and I was like uh, because I had seen deer there at all hours of the day. I was like I'm going to just sit here and I'm like you know what I'm going to be comfortable if I'm going to sit here. So I peed out the side of the tree, uh, which you know of course you're not supposed to do. The wind was just a squirrely southeastern wind or whatever. Uh, at that, at first it started coming, you know, the thermal or whatever's pulling it from the West. And by as the morning went on, it was pulling it Southeast. So it's going the wrong direction, but I just kept telling myself, I'm like, I don't care. I'm in the woods. This is great. It's a nice day. The leaves are starting to fall. Maybe we'll get to shoot a squirrel. Finally, I think it was about 1030 or so. Um, and I was planning to sit to at least 11. The, I'm like, all right, we're going to focus. We're going to turn this into a squirrel hunt. And I pulled out my squirrel arrows put one in the pull out my my broadhead put the squirrel arrow in the in the the rest and i'm just sitting there watching them waiting for one to come in close enough and then all of a sudden i hear this and i'm like i look over like oh that's a big oh that's not a big squirrel that is a deer and (laughs) so this doe goes walking by and um she went from my left to right and at that point i'm like okay we're going back to deer hunting because they're obviously moving in some capacity. And I put the broadhead back in. And I really didn't expect to see that doe again. But I don't know what kind of weird loop she made. She came back from basically the same direction she had come from. Came back the same way she had come from. And then took a 90 degree turn towards the cornfield. She was probably 18, 20 yards from me. And I knew I was only going to have a split second to make this happen. And I didn't have great shooting lanes, but I had a lane if she just would sneak into that. And she did. Um, she was walking. I wouldn't, she wasn't 
sprinting. She wasn't grazing. It was kind of a frantic, weird kind of walk. Um, so it gave me a, enough of time to send that arrow. <laughs> Honestly, you saw it. The best shot I've put on a deer probably ever uh, with with my bow. And I think, honestly, it's because I didn't really have time to think about it and get all crazy in between the ears. So I shoot her, big mule kick. I, that's the other thing. I remember the whole thing. Big mule kick, tail goes down, goes runs out into the cornfield. She, as Rut Daniels would say, didn't go 20 and laid right down on the edge of the field. There was absolutely no dragging involved. I was able to pull my truck all the way out there, all that kind of stuff. So... I said, I think I said it wasn't on this podcast. It might have been on the How to Hunt Deer Deer Camp one. The day everything goes right is the day I'm going to have to retire from this. Hey, you said that on this one. Did I? Okay. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, so at this point everything's gone right, and I'm like, shoot, I'm going to have to retire. And I go back. I gutter. I, I mean, it was best gutting job, field dressing job I ever done. You know, I put her in the truck. I had noticed something on her chest. It was kind of like, uh, it looked like she had a couple like softball size boobies boobies for for <laughs> lack of a better term like i wish i wish this was video i hope to god that you're that i'm you're, not that recording you're, the video but that was funny that would have been funny um yeah, he, he had his hands on his chest and he was he was i, I was pretending like a back and forth i was a deer with boobies um but the i didn't really think much of it because i shot when i shot her i thought that maybe her cavity had filled up with blood and, and liquid because a lot of times with those arrows, um, a single bellows don't give you a huge entry exit wound and there's not a lot of blood leaving the body because it, it just develops in the cavity. I get her home, I hang her and I'm getting, and it was warm that day. So there wasn't time to screw around and wait and anything. I start skinning her and you know, again, these were the front legs where I had these boobies and, um, when I got down to that area, something I knew I could start to tell was wrong. And it wasn't green, pus-filled, black tissue, anything like that. Um, it was a little yellow, but like a clear yellow. And then there's a lot of fluid in there. And so what I think, I'm not a doctor or biologist, but I did a little bit of Google biology and... There's like a cyst type of thing that they can develop if they have a traumatic injury. And um, whether it's getting caught on barbed wire, um, I don't know about hit, getting hit by a car. And where this deer was, I really would think very little chance of getting hit by a car. Um, maybe shot, right? We got hit before. This was right in the brisket area. I didn't dig deep into this area because I didn't. You asked me if I had found a broadhead or anything. I didn't dig deep in there because I was just like, I just kind of want to get this away from the, all the good meat and everything else. Um, I, it was warm. I want to get the good meat in the freezer. So it was one of those things that whatever the deal was, I lost basically the front half of that deer um, because I wasn't going to eat it and I wasn't going to feed it to my family. And I wasn't, I wouldn't even give it to my dog because I just didn't know what was going on. I talked to a few people. They're like, when in doubt, just don't do it. And, um, so I don't have to retire, Paul, because it didn't go exactly as didn't go, didn't, <laughs> didn't go right. Yeah, that uh, quite quite the story. I, I what was it a hydrocyst? I think is what those yes. are called. Yeah, they, I think you talked to Lindsey Thomas, maybe and, you know, that was his suggestion. So, 
or maybe he wrote an article. I don't know. Yeah, it looked it looked gross for sure. So it was different. Uh, yeah. Before we dive in, uh, thanks to our sponsors. We've got uh, TetherNation.com. Uh, if if I, I'm actually having a conversation with one of our listeners right now about tethered. Uh, he's thinking about jumping into the saddle game. So they, they've got a lot of stuff in stock. If you're still looking at it, um, tethernation.com. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, the guys go wild. So go, go wild months. They've got, we talked about it last week. They've added thousands of products. They got some really cool, they got some really cool, like new segments for their, for their products. So my go wild product of the week, Andrew, do you want to take a stab at what it is? No, you're wrong. Whatever you're going to say, but it has wrong. nothing it's to do the, with deer hunting. It's, it's it's the toadfish, the oyster hat. Twenty bucks. It's a rope hat with an oyster on it, an embroidered oyster. I need that. I need that in my life. So I need two of them, Paul. Yeah, there we go. So time to go wild.com. Open an account. You get uh, save save ten bucks. So uh, firstlight.com. The whitetail sales over, but they got a lot of stuff uh, still available uh, for your hunting pleasure i was in my sawbuck pants this week solids which man i freaking love those uh and i it was weird it was kind of a weird hunting like climate it was cold in the morning then it was 75 in the afternoon uh but i'll tell you what i had i did have to strip a layer down uh of the first light clothes but i was very comfortable very very happy with those so yeah and anybody's listening if you got questions on that kind of stuff feel free to reach out to us uh go wild instagram whatever um, and we can try to give you some tips on what we've been using. Yeah. We've walked a couple folks through on, on some of the products that we have that, that, that we like. So yes, if you are interested, uh, and, in, in our opinions, specifically Andrew's opinion, he's a first flight aficionado reach out. Or so, douche. uh, and you know what, feel free to find us on, on, uh, on, on the socials. It's, uh, the O2 podcast or O2 podcast, excuse me, on go wild. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, the dot O two dot podcast. Find me, Paul Campbell, three, two, two on Instagram, Paul Campbell on go wild. Uh, give us a review. We've got some stuff going out. Uh, I want to give a shout out to, uh, to a couple of listeners, man, that, uh, that have been interacting with me. One of our listeners, Bo, uh, has been absolutely murdering ducks and geese in South Dakota this week. So I cannot wait to get him on, uh, for, for the, uh, Hopefully he, he wants to do an O2 hunt camp segment, but he's been sending me some pictures on the, on the, on the gram. So both thanks for that, man. Uh, keep it coming. So uh, what else we got months? What do we got in sports? <laughs> I just read sports. What do we, what do we got? What do we got? In the and news? now to sports. Um, the Buckeyes did well last week. No, uh, it did well. Yeah. The, uh, freaking beat down hawkeye beat down so you know go. what your deer might be bigger but our football team's better so that's aimed at you dan, i'll take it dan johnson i'll take it what's aimed at you emperor the uh <laughs> oh news let's get to the news around the state um did i catch you off guard do we need to fill some air while you find uh yeah, so i why why, why tell are you us doing about your turkey your, your turkey stuff yeah 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 i i was i was fortunate enough to go on a fall turkey hunt uh with a uh really awesome dude from Northern Ohio, Brett Berry, uh, Brett and I did a podcast for the, uh, PA Woodsman, which I believe is coming out this week. So if you want to listen to that to our friend, Mitchell Shirk, hop on sportsman's empire, you can find that dude, we hunted with a dog, which I've never done, uh, for, for turkeys. It was freaking awesome. It, it was pretty cool. I didn't kill one spoiler alert. Um, we broke up one really small flock of, of Tom's. They got, they got kind of they got somewhat close. They didn't get, uh, 
and get within range, kind of, you know, heard him clucking and yelping and everything and scratching, but, uh, it was cool, man. If you've never hunted anything with dogs, do it. It's so fun watching a dog hunt. I mean, it's, it is just, it's just really a treat and, and watching, uh, was that the know, first really, time? Was that the first time? That was my, that? with the turkey dog. Yes. I've hunted pheasants and rabbit and ducks with dogs, but never, never turkeys. It was really cool. It was, it was, it was really neat. His dog, Josie was a freaking rock star. Um, yeah, it was really cool. So really, really enjoyed that. I did, I did do my first, my first hunt, uh, at Kildare Plains, which I'll say it, my name's on a list up there. So if you're up there, you're going to see it. Uh, so I, I, I was selected for the, uh, controlled hunt in one of the zones in Kildare Plains in the DSA. And it was, it was neat. I saw, I saw a lot of deer, not a lot, six to eight, maybe, uh, my buddy, Justin did not see any deer, uh, maybe one early in the year, early in the day that he kicked up. But I had, I, you talk about like, oh my God, it's the biggest squirrel. I had that same thing. I was watching a bunch of fox squirrels off to my left. And I looked down, I'm like, holy shit, that's the biggest deer or biggest squirrel. Ever. Oh my God, it's deer. Oh my God, there's three deer. <laughs> and they just, they just were in this tall grass. Uh, I, they, I had absolutely no shot and they just bedded down and I watched them for 35, 40 minutes. They just stayed right there. And then they, they, they picked up and walked off and out of my life. So it was still neat. Still, still a good time. I'm very, very hopeful uh, for that hunt up there. We saw a ton of deer on the road. We did walk around the property. Uh, and we're on like a 900 acre segment of this. So it's pretty big, a lot of ag corn was coming down. So yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to that. It was, it was funny. Uh, I, and he'll have to forgive me if he, if he listens, but the officer up there, I believe his name was Nate. I cannot remember his last name, but he calls me about eight 15 and I'm just hanging from the tree, man, just hanging out. And I have my phone on do not disturb. And it, it, it rings and I'm like, okay, someone really needs me. Cause he had to call like how many times to get past. And he knew, he knew, he knew that. And so it was an upper Sandusky number. I go to answer it. I miss it. I call it right back. And uh, he's like, is this Paul Campbell? I'm like, yeah, he's like, this is, you know, officer Nate whatever his last name is, uh, I'm the wildlife officer here for Kildare Plains. And so in my mind, I'm like, dude, I've done everything right. Like I thought I've done everything right. Like I'm, I'm trying to think of like what I could have done wrong. that would generate a call from the wildlife officer. And I have a rental truck because my Tahoe's in the shop and it had Tennessee plates on. He's like, well, is that your truck in the parking lot? And I'm like, yeah, the Tennessee plates. He's like, okay. He's like, I've never seen someone from out of state hunting here. He was concerned that someone was like trespassing. Uh, and he just wanted to make sure that it was me, but I, so I talked to him for, for probably a good five to 10 minutes and, and, and really enjoyed our, our talk. So That's thanks awesome. to all those wildlife officers out there taking, taking precautions. So. There you go. Hey, good segue to wildlife officer discussion. It's almost like I know what I'm doing. Yes, Andrew. We might no, we don't. Um, <laughs> we don't. That was dumb luck. <laughs> let's give a shout out to some wildlife officers up in, it looks like Columbiana County, um, all right. So the article from ODNR is wildlife officers in Northeast Ohio recently concluded a months long investigation into illegal dumping activities on private property that culminated with 30 individuals being issued a total of 40 summons. According to ODNR division of wildlife, uh, individuals were cited for litter shooting from the roadway and driving with suspended license. Um, the article goes on to give you more details uh, on the, exactly what was going on. But, Paul, I know you and I have been out on public land, and this was maybe more on private land, but it doesn't matter at all. It's garbage that ends up in our 
our ecosystem, our, our, our ecosystem yeah. and our our playground, right? So yeah. to hell with you people dumping mass amounts of trash, any trash out into the you know the wild. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that we have people like the uh, officers up there taking care of business. Yeah. Unfortunately, they got to waste yeah. their time on that. That's the stupid part because we're all t- taught at five years old, don't throw trash out the window. All right, I'm off my soapbox. No, that that's yeah. If you if you if you litter, and you know, I I go out to my my home wildlife area, if you will, and I, every time I go out, there's a new piece of trash, and I've picked up stuff when I'm out hunting, you know, cans or whatever. Um, yeah, but you can't pick up a couch. I Who the hell does that? Why? Yeah, I, it's it's it's. I, I get really frustrated as as with all of us. So, uh, yeah, you suck if you litter. That's all I can say. Yep. All right. So now from the opinion desk. Uh, <laughs> just real quick, we got a little bit of some acorn abundance influences behaviors of Ohio wildlife. I'm not sure about the abundance side of things. I've seen good acorn drop this year, but. Uh, 2022 survey of acorn abundance on selected Ohio wildlife areas shows an average of 39% of white oaks and 37% of red oaks bore fruit. Uh, the long-term average for white oak production is 37 and red oak is 54. So we are down a little bit from the long-term averages, but in case you were wondering, now you know what, uh, how much... The acorns, how how good the acorn drop is this year around Ohio. I I stumbled across uh actually I, I maybe someone sent me a picture. I don't know. It's it's been a couple of years, but it was like a basket in the woods. And it was uh I th- I call I think I sent it to Mike Tonkovich and I was like, what the hell is this? And it was for collecting acorns to do those surveys, and they just go through and like just rummage through and count the acorns. So pretty neat. I like it. Paul, you want to yeah. give us uh, some information here on uh, what the NWTF has done around the Buckeye State? Yeah, so the so the NWTF they they've been sending out conservation news, and and it's basically uh, you know it's an update for what the National Wild Turkey Federation is doing in in the collective states. So I get them for all of the states that uh, that I work in, which is a ton. So I I, I enjoy reading about all of them. Uh, so the the state the the NWTF has funded. And it's kind of it's kind of weird how because public land like you can't just go out and work on stuff right I mean there's a process that you have to that you have to go through and and funding and and how money gets spent within uh, you know the natural resources and the conservation arena so it's 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 a lot harder than we're just going out and cutting down trees and and so the NWTF has helped fund uh, to the tune it's been it's a, it's, it's a over a hundred thousand dollars just for some conservation work on a couple of wildlife management areas some Mosquito Creek, Delaware wildlife area which I was actually out there when the when the guys were doing this this work and then um, uh, Wolf Creek wildlife area so so basically just invasive species control uh, which helps with kind of that understory that 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 shrubby brush that that turkeys like and and good nesting habitats so getting rid of those invasive species tree of heaven autumn olive oh gosh a couple a couple others getting rid of some some dead trees uh in mosquito creek so uh you know it's it's not that that work isn't sexy you know it's not like the land acquisition that we just went through in the state uh, you know, a couple, you know, last, last what, 18 months ago, the state bought state and WTF chapter bought 1300 acres and converted it to public land. It's, you know, we're getting ready to announce uh, a $50,000 contribution from the state and WTF and the national WTF and the state of Ohio for a research project. That's the stuff people like to hear, 
But what really matters is like that, that boring, and I'm using air quotes because it's not boring, conservation work, uh, like invasive species mitigation and, and, and control. So it's a big step. Uh, it's, it's a long process for that. The state has done a really good job of, you know, I've been on a couple of properties um, where, where timber management has been highlighted. A couple of properties that I've hunted for years and didn't really know what was going on. And I go down there with the Forest Service, with the NRCS, you know, with Ohio State professors, and they talk about the work. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. And you see the results of good, of good management. So uh, it's a process. It's a long process. It's an ongoing process. Uh, and I'm proud to be, you know, part of the organization to, to doing that. So that's any questions. Yeah. Any, any questions you can visit nwtf.org, click on conservation. You can go to our state or any state you want. You can see the work and the process that's been going on or call me or email me, whatever. I'll answer all your questions. So pretty cool. And thanks for letting me talk about that. Absolutely, man. Hats off to you guys for all that work and uh, we appreciate it. So, all right, Paul. So I don't know if anybody of our listeners actually enjoyed this, except I can tell you that there is one wife of a co-host of a podcast in Ohio that did enjoy this part of the thing, but I'm going to go into campfire story number two. Okay. So this yeah. is, remember this is ODNR's uh, getting into the Halloween spirit. Uh, as we lead up to, I guess it's next week already. Jeez. Um, but the legend of Blue Hole at Clifton Gorge State Nature Preserve. So here we go. Fiery embers once again set the scene for the stories, which will be released once a week through October. Telling the tales is Hawking College professor and renowned co-author of books like Haunted Hawking, A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Hawking Hills and Beyond, Pat Quackenbush. The second campfire story begins with un. All right. I'm, I feel like an idiot when I was reading this earlier. I can unrequited, unrequited love. Uh, Requited? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. This is why, well, I, this is why I shouldn't be the one teaching my six-year-old how to read. You know, we should have just played the audio without I asking for permission. <laughs> <laughs> just, okay. Just but here's, so. here's the background. All right. So a woman takes extreme measures to attract the attention of a man she loved. When she saw him flirting with another woman, she climbed to the tallest rock, let out a scream, and jumped into the blue waters. Sure, her love would save would save her. To find out what happened next and why some say this site is haunted, watch the video here. And then there's obviously a link. So I went and clicked the link, and I, we were actually starting to play it earlier, and then we decided we don't have permission to play it. But um, it looks like on ODNR's YouTube page... Uh, they have campfire stories with Pat Quackenbush. So this is the one about Clifton Gorge. You can get on the YouTube and check that out, or I'm sure it's on ODNR's website as well. So little Halloween teaser there. But I know what everybody really wants to hear. The champ is here. Ah, the champ is back. All right. So as of, it would have been October 19th, here are the Ohio hunting deer harvest numbers. 25,963 total white-tailed deer have been harvested. 8,917 have been antlered. 17,046 antlerless. So we're about uh, two to one on the antlered, antlerless to antler deer. And Paul, who's on top with the county with the most harvest up until this point is unreal are you recording still yes unreal thank you spectrum for the drop 
I shouldn't pay my bill this month. Uh, she's like, you, <laughs> Just, uh, you're still recording, right? Yes. You interrupt everything we try to do here. <laughs> I so I took. We're gonna put. I want to put it on TikTok, and you can put it on on Instagram. I I took a video of you like. Oh great! In mid in mid sentence, just like frozen. Where where so, did I leave off? Uh, I I was singing the champ is here, and we were going to talk about uh the king of the deer killing counties. So right. so we'll just start back there. And I I don't know, I'll I'll dub this whatever. All right, Paul. <laughs> don't even dub it. Just play it. The- <laughs> this is so stupid. Uh. All right, so we got 25,963 total deer, 8,917 antlered, 17,046 antlerless, and the king still reigns with Coshocton County having the highest total number of harvests with 1,024. So what's 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 county 2? What's the difference? Can county 2 make a comeback or is this like uh Georgia and Ohio State and everyone else is just nipping at our heels? Well, Paul, yes. Why do you ask me these questions when I'm not just sure. find find the answer. I'm trying. Yeah, I, I I was hoping that it was a list or <laughs> but I don't know. So, well, I cuz I really want to know. So, we're we're going to pull we're going to pull something here. So, after this intro, we're going to have uh Parker Gregwire is going to come on and talk about uh the next segment of the O2 Hunt Camp. So, if you are a hunter in the state of Ohio or elsewhere and you listen to this show and you've got a cool story about a hunt, whether it be deer, turkey, duck, pheasant, hop on the show. Come listen to us. Tell us about it. We try to keep the story to about 10 minutes. We've had some really cool uh, cool folks come on and, and, and talk. So Parker just took his uh, – it was a first deer with a compound bow. Yes. Uh, if I recall. And it was a, it was, it was a doe or a buck. I, I can't remember. It was a doe. No, so yeah, uh, very, very thankful uh, for Parker, and uh, and and so if you'd listen, man, just reach out to us. You can find one of us on uh, on the socials. Oh, the other social I forgot to to mention was uh, was TikTok with our one video with Tony Peterson. Yep, there you go. So that was kind of cool. To answer, We're gonna do some fun stuff with to, that to, eventually. To, I don't know. To answer your question, if this, these are unofficial results because I'm just scanning a list really quickly. But it looks like Trumbull is second with uh, 923. So they're like like a hundred, they're they're a hundred off. I don't. Yeah, they can make up that that uh, that yeah. number. Yeah. Trumbull County, what are you guys doing, man? Pick up the slack. Come on. I was hunting in Trouble County for turkeys the other day, so I was not doing my part. So please forgive me. You're probably scaring them all. Uh, I decided, you know, I didn't see a single deer when I was out there on all the properties that uh, that I was on. Not one. It was a weird wildlife day. Just it was it was just weird. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's see here. Tonight's real discussion with actual content is with John Teeter of Whitetail Landscapes. And John is a fellow Sportsman's Empire network host. He runs the Whitetail Landscapes podcast. So John's based out of New York, and he gives us a pretty good rundown of, you know, kind of his his thing is habitat, and, and he's a consultant that does habitat consultation. And so habitat to to one max maximize the benefits to wildlife, to maximize your hunting capabilities. So it was pretty neat, pretty right. neat talk. And he's one got- of the things that he said that, that I really liked once was, uh, you know, he and, and you you were like, yeah, I do this all the time. Well, you're sitting in the tree stand, take inventory of the things that you want to do, write them down, remember them, 
work on them at the end of the season because you see it from a tree stand. You see it from a ground blind. You see the deer moving, how they react. I mean, this is the time to really kind of learn and understand your property and the, and, and the changes that you want to enact after season, you know, 2023. 100%, 100%. So yeah, really, really good, man. Appreciate John. You know, when you say John, John Teeter, I always think of John Taffer, the, the bar rescue guy. I wonder, I wonder if John Taffer hunts, we should get, you don't know who John Taffer is like, are you serious? No idea what you're talking about. Bar rescue. You've never watched. So it's like these shitty bar owners, right. That suck. And like, they're so desperate for help. Like they reach out to John Taffer and they're like, come help me. And so John Taffer just basically goes in and like insults these people from the, like tells them how much they suck for the first like 20 minutes of the show. And then like, there's like this psychological, like you can do better, you piece of shit. And then he gives him like a brand new bar and restaurant, just like totally rehab, you know, like rehabilitates everything and then try, you know, builds you up and then, and then, and then just leaves. So sorry, Paul. The, we, that, we watch Bluey at our house. So dude, I, I, <laughs> freaking bar rescue. Google that shit tonight. Wild we get off this call. John to I am yeah, Minecraft Bluey. I, I'll tell you what, if you are a parent of children nowadays, and Bluey is not in your repertoire, do it. It's the best damn cartoon I've ever seen. We I, I, we laugh constantly, yeah. constantly. We were raised so, on Pee Wee Herman. It's a different world now, which is it might, is a it might be better things. Uh, so Pee Wee Herman. So. My 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 buddy Mike sends me a text about about Bluey season three episode twenty two, or I can't remember which one. It's called Whale Watching. So he's like, you got to watch it. So I, I I watch it, and Bluey's mom and dad, Bingo and and uh, Chili. <laughs> I can't believe I, I love the show. Bingo <laughs> Chili on, on New Year's Eve, they get all drunk and they're dancing on the tabletop and, and they're super hungover. So their kids are like wanting to play with them and they're so hungover that they can't move. So they're just laying on the floor making whale sounds. <laughs> like, <laughs> and the mom, Chili, is like stuffing nachos in her face because she's still drunk. <laughs> Oh, we've all been, oh, we've man. all been there, Paul, right? Oh, Just gosh. like Chili and Bluey or whatever. So, yeah, uh, as I have, so. Hey, the only thing I, I got, and this is going to be a day late, but happy birthday, big man. Oh, thank you, man. Appreciate that. I will be, uh, 40 in just a couple of hours, man. So excited, excited about that. That's cool. I'm going to spend it in the tree stand. I'm going to spend the first half of it, uh, in the tree stand. Hopefully keep your streak alive of telling people to hunt on a Tuesdays. Tuesday and, and killing deer. So you're what? Two weeks in a row? Two for two. Now two it's, for two, it's, baby, it's so. an evening thing, but you know, if you shoot it in the I morning. I can't do the evening. Yeah, I can't, I just can't oh, I don't blame it. you. Tomorrow's not going to be yeah. good for that anyways. But if it's yeah. you shoot it in the morning, you don't find it to the afternoon, it counts, right? Just don't send, me, it, the, send me the picture around 630 when I'm walking into Cub Scouts. It'll be perfect. There you go. I'll do that. But no, thank you, man. I, I, I appreciate it. So, yeah. Well, everybody, uh, we appreciate you listening uh like paul mentioned earlier find us on any of the social media stuff we do have a patreon out there if you're interested but um we are uh very very grateful for all the the listeners out there and uh keep it keep it going so hope you enjoy this week's show good luck to you if you get out in the woods and we'll talk to you next week yeah thank you so much for listening really appreciate you guys see ya Okay, what's up, everybody? Uh, tonight we've got Paul and a uh, special guest, uh, Parker Gregoire. Parker, how are you today? Good, how are you? Oh, just just fabulous. Came in here from out sitting this afternoon. It was uneventful, but it was a nice afternoon to sit. So 
Um, Parker, you I've known you for a few years, and uh, you've killed a lot of very nice deer, but this year you started the year off with something a little different, a little special, and uh, that's why we're going to have you come on and talk about this. So will you give us a quick background on how you kind of got raised and how old you are and everything and, and how you got raised in hunting and, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, so I'm 19 now. Uh, I probably started hunting when I was too young to remember, honestly. Um, <laughs> you're getting old. My, uh, I didn't realize you were that old already. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, my my dad would take me out um, when I was younger just to sit with him. Um, and to be honest, when I was younger, I did not like to go hunting. I didn't like it. Um, it was cold and didn't really see a whole lot <laughs> but uh i went anyway to kind of make my dad happy and figured what's the worst that could happen um your dad he's he was raised in the school of the hard knocks too so papa gregoire he'll uh i could see him dragging you out there whether it was comfortable <laughs> or you know sub-zero yep but uh i'd say i'd say seriously hunting uh probably the past four years is when i've uh, really dove into it. Um, there's some reasoning behind that. Uh, I'd say the the first year that I started hunting, I saw some really big bucks and I don't think I was ready to see those big of bucks. And that kind of just sparked something in me and it kind of took off from there. Awesome. So you, so you were just having encounters with them. You didn't get to, to shoot it, shoot at any of the big bucks. Well, I, uh, that first season I decided I wanted to go start hunting just on my own. Um, and, uh, we went and bought a cell cam. My dad and I, it was the first cell cam I ever bought, um, bought a cell cam, put out some corn, just figured, see what would happen. And I think that next day that I had the cell cam out, uh, I went out hunting. It was November 13th huge cold front came through big snowstorm had just passed and uh there was probably a 160 inch buck shot right underneath him with my crossbow and it was crazy yeah he came in on like i think there was nine does in front of me he came in let out the nastiest grunt i think i've ever heard it was probably it was, it was like a roar um and yeah shot right underneath him i was like well i just screwed that up went back, went home and just soaked that in, went out the next day, saw a 140 inch buck shot underneath them again. And I, you know, I was just naive and didn't, uh, wasn't checking my, my bow, my crossbow, my scope was off. So I, uh, that, that's kind of how it started really <laughs> missed two bucks in a row. And that, that, uh, it kind of ticked me off. <laughs> so, so were you, you were just hooked at that point. You're like, I have to kill one of these big deer. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, there, there was two that kept coming back through the season. Um, one of them's on my wall. One of them's not. Um, unfortunately the bigger ones, the one that's not on my wall, <laughs> but, uh, he's actually on someone else's as a 200 inch buck. So, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, yeah, that, that first season was, was what really set it off. So that's awesome. That's awesome. So it takes a little bit of time to get, 
get you going in there. And then um, you talked about it a little bit, but you you kind of grew up with a crossbow, and that's you know that's a lot of the, the normal progression. But this year, and I think your dad did as well. You guys switched back to upright bows. Uh, yeah, my dad's not quite sure um, what he's going to be using yet this year. He hasn't been able to make it out. He works um, too much. That's the problem. <laughs> you got to take a break for a second if you can. Yep. But uh, yeah, I I I fell I fell in pretty hard on the vertical bow, um, just practicing a whole lot, and um, this is my passion. This is the only thing that I really do. You know, all my other brothers play sports, so. I quit playing sports about the same time that I started hunting. So uh, this is my sport and this is what I do. So I figured might as well just take the challenge to the next step um, and just invest a little bit more into it. That's great. So tell us about the setup you've got going. I mean, now that you told us you're 19, I, I remember Parker like being what 13 or 14. So I, I figured you're going to tell us you're pulling 45 pounds and, you know, whatever, but I'm, I'm guessing you, you're probably a little bit higher up there. Uh, yeah. I mean, still, still not shooting. Uh, I'm not shooting 80 pounds, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think I'm right around like 63 pound draw weight. Uh, I got a Matthews V3 X. Nice. Um, that's, that's really it. I, I got the arrows that whatever the pro shop gave me, I went and bought some muzzy trocar HBs. And that's what I shot my doe with. Um, and that worked. That's what, that's <laughs> it worked. What, that's what you got to do. So it, obviously you practiced a lot this summer getting ready for it. So let's let's talk about the this year's success. You got out in the woods. Um, what weekend was it? What was the situation like? Tell us all, all the details. We want to hear it all. So I, I only really hunt temperature drops. And usually it wouldn't be all that important hunting a doe. And at least in my opinion, um, I find it pretty easy to go out and hunt does. These does specifically are, they're hunt, they're, they're hunted a lot and they experience a lot of pressure. Um, so they don't, they like, they're like bucks. They just, they, they come out after dark a whole lot. So it was the cold front. I needed it uh, to shoot these does. And actually, since I shot these does, they haven't daylighted since the, the group of them. Um, but I actually, my girlfriend was there with me. Uh, she, she got a video of it. It was kind of cool because she's a new hunter. Uh, she's going to be using a crossbow this year. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, uh, they rolled in about an hour before dark and, um, just, yeah, it, everything pretty much went as planned. Um, they, they came into my corn pile. Um, and I, I, I actually think that most of the does spooked off. They saw me draw and, and they spooked off, but one of them was just like, what are you guys talking about? I don't see shit. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, they just kind of stood there or she just kind of stood there and, uh, I, I took my shot on her. She was one of the bigger does in the group. Um, and, uh, everything was good up until then. I thought my shot was good. Um, it wasn't bad. Uh, she, she was quartering two a little more than I expected. Um, which it is what it is, but, uh, I, I, I put a liver shot on her. Um, I caught some lung, there was some bubbles, but not a whole lot. 
tracked her about, I think we tracked her 80 yards and it was dark. My phone was on 1%. My girlfriend's phone was on 1%. I'm getting turned around in the woods. My flashlight's dying. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. this is the worst case scenario. Um, the blood wasn't great. I knew it was a liver shot, uh, but we gave her plenty of time. So how long, did, how long did you give her? Uh, we, we waited about an hour and a half. Um, I wasn't sure if it was a liver shot by that time. Uh, but I figured an hour and a half was a good wait time. And then once I started tracking to her, it became apparent that it was a liver shot. Um, and since the blood, the blood wasn't great. Um, it took us about an hour to track her 80 yards, believe it or not. Um, and by that time, you know, it's been two and a half hours. Um, and I decided to back out, went back the next morning in between work. Um, my dad let me off for about an hour there and, uh, went, went 30 yards from last blood and found her piled up. So she didn't go very far. She died quick. Um, it was just unfortunate situation that I couldn't find her that night. It happens, man. It happens to the best of us. And yeah. I'm glad you got, went back next day and got her. Yeah. So, they went good. So, so Parker, were you just to, to kind of back up a little bit, were you hunting private public? What were you hunting? Uh, private land. This is my okay. family uh, farm. No, actually it's my, uh, behind my grandpa's house. Uh, my, my mom's dad, um, he lives just a few miles away, but, uh, just behind his house. I think he owns eight acres total, but it was probably about two acres of woods. What's up okay. to a little bit more woods, but uh, only two acres of, of his woods. So, okay. So, so when, when, when you hit her, you hit, you know, liver, a little bit of lungs. Did you get a full pass through? How was penetration uh, with the shot? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Penetration was good. Um, arrow came all the way out originally but not, but the, the fletching was still caught up. So she ran through some brush and it came out probably eight yards from where she took off. So it was a pass through, but it, it kind of slowed through her. Took a, took, took a little bit to get out. Of her. Yeah, there you go. Good, good deal. So, so set up, are you, are you in a, a tree stand? Were you on the ground tree saddle? What, what were you sitting in? Uh, yeah, we were in just a regular double wide ladder stand. Okay. Um, Great. what I've been Great. on. So I was a little, so, so let me, let me ask you this. I'm going to bust your balls a little bit. Your girlfriend's oh. new girlfriend's a new hunter. Why didn't you let her shoot first? <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she actually didn't have her bow with her. Um, okay. She was, she goes to college. She was just visiting me for the, for the night. And I asked her if she wanted to come sit with me. I gave her a few items of my, uh, collection <laughs> of my hunting gear and uh yeah she just came sat with me for for the evening good 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 for good for so so when is when is she gonna when is she gonna get comfortable and, and is she ready to get out there and start shooting deer yeah yeah we're uh it's it's getting uh the rut is almost starting to ramp up the pre-rut anyway um here so I'm hoping that we can get down to our cabin and get her one down there. The there's something about it, just the the whole culture around it while we're down there is different. We got friends around and you just you shoot deer and you you come back and it's deer camp. So um that's that would be the ideal spot for her to 
get her first deer for me, just because it's the whole experience of it. Um, it's not always going to work out that way. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can get her one here soon. I've, but, been, uh, I've been to that deer camp and that is an awesome deer camp. I think if we're yeah. talking about the same one, so definitely a great yeah. place to, to get it started. Yeah, it's fun. That's, that's where I shot my first deer and it's a good spot for anyone to shoot their first deer. So hopefully she just doesn't come home with a 200 inch deer because she'll make <laughs> us all look bad. <laughs> I hope she gets it. <laughs> yeah. No, good luck. Yeah. Good luck to her. So, I, I so, I'd be stoked, so oh, absolutely. So ruts coming up. What are your what you you got any target bucks uh, for for this season? I, I don't have a whole lot just yet. Um, I got a couple three and a half year olds that look pretty good, but um, probably not going to pull the trigger on. Um, at least not yet. Um last year i i didn't have anything on camera last year until about the 20th of october so and i and i still had a good season last year so um i'm hoping that they make the transition some of them just transition late from their summer ranges so um i'm still seeing them out in the bean fields around here so hopefully uh hopefully a big one makes makes its way around into in front of one of my cell cams (laughs) but more importantly, right in front of you, right? So when you're sitting out there. <laughs> yeah, I uh I I I like to have some uh some sort of experience with them before before that time to calm the nerves, but <laughs> I uh that's how it went last year. So well, we all uh wish the best of luck to you, Parker. Do you want to give your uh, Instagram uh handle so people can see what you're doing? Because I know you're a big fisherman too and they're in the in the summer. Yeah. Um, it's just hook set underscore underscore. That's, that's my outdoors page. There you go. And that's where all the, all the good stuff is from Parker. So, Hey man, good luck the rest of the year. And, uh, we'll, we'll keep, keep a tab on you and see, uh, I want to see some big bucks both from you and from, uh, your girlfriend. Right. All right. I appreciate you guys. Take care, dude. All right, Park. Thanks for your time, man. Thanks. Bye. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the O2 Podcast. Uh, tonight, Paul and I are uh, lucky enough to be joined by Mr. John Teeter. John, how are you tonight? Good, guys. How you been? Oh, it's uh, it was cold today and rainy here in Ohio. Really starting yeah. to feel like fall. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I I hunted today. Uh, it's my second day of the season. I went after. Um, I went right right after a buck tonight. Uh, I try to sneak up in his bedroom, which is crazy. Um, I'm not desperate, but I just, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of patience right now. Um, so I literally crawled into the bedroom. I kicked up some does. I'm guessing he was in there, um, but I got busted and you know, it's pushing the limits and, and sometimes it's okay to do that. So that, that's kind of uh <laughs> That's kind of a strategy, I would say, if you want to be a maverick, you know, that would be a strategy I would say, you know, consider, uh, but don't consider it too often. High risk, high reward, huh? Well, I'll tell you why. Uh, so I pulled up to this property that I hunt. This isn't my own farm. Uh, this is another property. And uh, they're cutting timber. They're cutting timber in the property. So I assume based upon the pressure of them cutting timber, they would kick the deer north which worked to a charm. That's where the deer were. 
It's just that they were so tight to my access point that I had to sneak all the way around. I assumed this. I stuck all the way around, and I came up from up underneath them, so kind of up a hillside. So I went all the way around, came up the hillside, and I sneak into their bedroom, and all of a sudden there's a doe looking at me, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I don't move, see another doe. They jump up, and the rest is history. I still stayed in that bedroom because there's so many adjacent little areas and pockets they could have ended up funneling back down to. Uh, it could have been a productive hunt. But, hey, that's the way it goes. And I I, uh, I predicted this day would be a good day. It just, uh, you know, it, uh, it is what it is. So did so. You, did you ever get eyes on them, on the buck? No, no, no. No, but I, I bet you, I bet she was in there. I, there was enough sign even walking in. I could tell that it, it, you know, I'm, when I'm walking in, I'm looking for fecal matter and I'm looking for size of track, right? I'm not looking at rubs. Uh, I'm only looking at scrapes. If I can see a size of a track, that's all I care about. I know there's bucks in these areas. I don't really, that sign doesn't predicate uh, any hunting attributes that I'm looking at right now. So I just, I just jump in after a deer. Uh, and that's typically sometimes what I do if, if I'm freestyle hunting. And tonight was freestyle. Unplanned, unstrategized property. I know we're going to talk a little bit about my business and what I do, but I think having opportunities to just run and gun and just hunt is the best thing that you can do. It gets you back to like when I was a kid. And I wanted to hunt tonight like when I was a kid. Awesome. That's great. Well, do you want to go ahead and give people uh, who aren't familiar with you a little bit of an idea uh, who who John Teeter is, what he does, uh, both in his yep. free time and in his full time. Yeah, so um, I I live in Syracuse, New York, a little place called Tully. I'm in uh, it's upstate or central New York. I uh, I have a business called Whitetail Landscapes, and I travel mostly in the Northeast, but I work all over the country. I'm actually going to Ohio next week. I'm working during hunting season, which really is not fun. I shouldn't say that, but um, anything related to deer is probably fun for a lot of people. It's just I work on a lot of properties. So anyhow, I design hunting properties, and um, it's a niche market for me because I'm a lot different from a lot of consultants. I'm used to hunting really highly pressured deer. Uh, New York is by far, in my opinion, the most highly pressured state, period. And, you know, I've been in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and some of these other areas, and, and there's a lot of hunting pressure in pockets. But when you when you boil it down to the private land and the hunters per acre or hunters per square mile, it's, you know, Pennsylvania and New York are neck and neck. Um, so I really hunted some really, really hard to hunt areas, industrial park, suburban areas, big woods. Um, I'm in mixed ag, but mostly forested land now. And uh, it's given me a lot of experience to kind of help people across the country. And I'm a one and, one and done. I go in, I kill, and I get out. You know, I hunt just a few times a year, but I'm, I'm going back to my roots. I'm hunting and freestyling. I want to go back to how I used to hunt when I was a kid. Uh, but my business has grown quite a bit. Um, I do a ton of clients. You know, I like folks in New York. And uh, like I said, I'm going to Ohio to work on a client's property. So I, I travel all over the place, uh, Michigan, Iowa, uh, Illinois, Indiana, but mostly in New York, Pennsylvania. I'll go in New Hampshire this year, Vermont, New Jersey, Connecticut. Wow. I mean, you name it. I've I've worked all over the place. Wow. Yeah, I bet you see a lot of things then. 
in your in your travels? Yeah, the trick to designing hunting properties is you got to have a system. And when you're used to having, uh, I want to say, limited control over a property or you have maximum control of property, that changes how much you can actually do. So that's kind of the bottom of the barrel. How much control do you have over the property? And as a result of it, what can you do? What are your options? We'll probably talk about some of that today in, in the discussion. For sure. So on, on some of the properties that you deal with uh, in your day-to-day job, what kind of sizes are, are you working with? Is it Do you have a minimum? Do you have, uh, you know, I, I guess there's probably no maximum, right? That would be I, as much the more the merrier, but average <laughs> kind of uh, a size that you work with? You know, I would say most of my clients are probably 60 to 120 acres in that range, so probably on average 80 you know, it, it's basically, you know, the average American can afford, you know, they have so much disposable income. And depending on where you are nationally and what the acreage is, you know, the cost per acre is, it, it kind of dictates, you know, really kind of the size of these properties. I mean, and you know, even out your way, land is astronomically expensive in some of these areas. Um, and there's areas in New York, you know, there's land that's a thousand bucks an acre still. Um, but then you get into some areas and it's $10,000 an acre. The other thing is, um, you know, what I, what I, what I like to focus in on, at least when I'm working on these hunting properties is, you know, if you have a small acreage and I worked on three or four properties last year under 20 acres, maximizing every single inch of that property. And, uh, I'm a small landowner. I own 48 acres. And, uh, when I bought my property five years ago, it was blank slate, all forested, well, 95% forested. And the cool part about that property was it didn't have anything done to it. So I was the master, right? I could, I could devise a plan. And uh, a lot of people make a huge mistake. They don't sit and wait and analyze and take time to think about their strategy. You know, you can watch a bunch of YouTube videos. A lot of people like to watch Jeff Sturge's videos and, um, I think Jeff does a great job, you know, broadcasting, you know, what his strategy is and explaining to people, but there's not a lot of specificity. And honestly, some of the design philosophies, you know, don't necessarily align with what I do, but I would say it's good to have data and information. It's just trying to get, taking that data and applying it. And that's where a lot of people struggle. So on my own property is a good example is, you know, we came in, uh, I waited, I observed, I ran 15 cameras on it, I collected data, I looked at age class, I looked at volume of food, I looked at my timber quality, I kind of broke down the property into the key attributes, and then as a result of that, I started making some decisions on how to move forward. I came up with a plan, uh, actually the guy that does my implementation work was the guy that I hired, and uh, he ended up, you know, kind of working with me to devise a plan. And if anybody ever heard that story, it's, it's a long, crazy story of how I picked him out of a hat with a bunch of other people. But, um, and I, I talked a little bit on my podcast and, and those who follow White Tail Landscapes podcast will, will know that story. But, um, you know, I think you got to be really particular and have a plan. And if you don't, you know, fan, failing to plan is going to be your biggest failure on your property. And if you're going to invest, 100,000, 200, 300, 400. I've got clients that have, you know, spent over a few million dollars on property. I'm a drop in the bucket compared to their expenses and it, it sets them down the right path. And, uh, 
you know, I've worked on a couple properties that are over a thousand acres. Um, and then, like I said, down to less than 20 acres. I think had a couple 15 acre properties, a 17 acre property, 24 acres in the thirties. I've done a couple fifties last year, mostly 80, 90 acres. I do those in a day. I walk them in a day usually. So when you're talking about collecting data on these properties, you talk about hanging the trail cameras. Is there other data that you're looking at on a, on a property? Not, this isn't even what we're going to talk about, but now my brain is, is, is stirring. As yeah, far as yeah. like, um, well, something stupid as, as food sources, are you taking note of the different plant types and different things like that in the data? And that, that's all part of the plan, right? Yeah, so I look at the habitat as it stands. And then I look at the habitat quality. All right, so it's a metric. So if you're looking at your property and it's 30-acre property, this is I'm going to go through the design process. It's going to help people, right? This is the goal. We got to get people thinking differently. And this is this is the difference between watching YouTube and and uh, you know having a real devising a plan. Is look at the different vegetation types on your property, okay? Then look at the habitat quality. But so we bounce back and say, okay, what is the vegetation? Is it forest land, shrubland? Like what is the type? Is it wetland? And then categorize that into values. Is it good, bad? We'll keep it simple. High, medium, low for deer. And then next to that, you're looking individually. You're looking at the type of plant species, the volume of them, right, the richness of them across the landscape, and you're giving it a measurement, so quality. And you could do, you know, low, medium, high, or one through ten. Now you kind of got some framework to work off, and you say, okay, what are deer? What are their preferences? Uh, what do they like to be? What areas do they like to be in? When do they like to be in these areas of time of year? And if you have a lot of hunting uh, or just observational information on your property through trail cameras, you'll get to see how they utilize those areas. You don't have to know a lot about plants. You don't have to know a lot about vegetation or anything like that. The camera data will tell you how often they frequent those areas. And then you can tell your story why. Now you can hire me and I can tell you why, where, when, all those type of things, but you can figure that out on your own. Then the next step of it is figuring out how to amplify that. And you need to understand whitetail biology and their needs. And then what I like to do is I like to take a property and it's 30 acres. We're going to chunk it into six, five acre grids. And each one of those grids, we're going to define a purpose for each one of those areas. And then we're going to make sure that, you know, they all kind of correlate and there's flow between area A and B and C and D. And they all kind of congregate and make sense. Now, I've never designed a hunting property where it runs like a carousel. The deer run around the outside and you shoot them at the edge, right? Now, there'll be portions of the property that may allow that, but most properties are not either sized correctly um, or, uh, you know, the terrain doesn't allow it, the soil type doesn't allow it. Um, those are the factors that help you kind of juxtapose and figure out these puzzle pieces. And at the end of the day, you've got to figure out how to put that all together in, in an overarching plan, if that makes sense. So, John, now your your background for somebody who, you know, if you do you go to school for something like this, or is, do you are you a forestry guy? Are you a biology guy? Are you just like uh, been hunting whitetails through and through and watching trail cameras for a million years? Or yeah, so um, that's a bit of a loaded question. So Sorry. the to be good in this field, you have to have a lot of disciplines, right? So you have to have um, you have to understand ecology. Uh, you have to understand um, forest management on most properties. 
Um, you have to understand what wildlife biology or whitetail biology. Uh, there's the hunting aspect of it. So I came in from the hunting aspect of it. But when I started this, I was in my 20s. I'm 40 now. Right? I'm 40. So in, you know, 20 years later, reading, right, School of Hard Knocks, it's gotten me into a place of being around right, the right people. So like, I always find this funny. So I was on a couple foresters properties this year. So you know, I got clients that are all over the place, right? These guys went to college for forestry, right? They studied uh, forest management, civil culture. I've read a lot of books, right? I've done timber harvest. I've worked with clients to do all that kind of stuff. So I know the ins and outs, right? But I, I have good resources, but I'm on these guys' property telling them what trees to cut, why. And they're like, this is a totally different strategy than they're accustomed to. So it's a combination of having a bunch of experience, being very efficient and knowledgeable hunter. And I told you that's amplified because I hunt really, really tough areas, but then studying the biology aspects of which I do not have background in. So I had to learn that through the process and read and study, whether it's studies out of Texas A&M, Penn State, it's taking that scientific data and applying it. Um, and I think I have a technical background, right? Um, and because I have a technical background, I can kind of understand all these pieces and kind of put together a plan and a process. And that's really kind of uh, my background in this. But you know, I've done a ton of properties and, and you kind of build this, um, this pedigree of kind of influence and in developing people to think a different way. And it's not a sales pitch, it's a paradigm shift. And we're taking you know, everything that you may have thought about and we're putting rule sets to them and then they were getting you to visualize the forest like I look at it. Because when I go in a bedding area and I'm creating a bedding area, and I've been on other consultants' properties, and it, I'll be honest with you, I don't, we all have our own preferences. So when I go in, I'm not likely gonna like what they did. Because I wouldn't have cut that tree, I would have cut that tree, I would have kept, kept these group, groups of trees together. Because the way I look at design um, is a little bit different than a lot of people. Um, and I think like a good example would be, um, when uh, people think white-tailed deer, this is a biology thing, um, are an edge specialist, okay? Now, the only true edge specialist that seems to be most obvious to me are rabbits, okay? They live in those environments. It's conducive to their habitat and needs. But deer prefer those because of the volume of food in those areas. So they're not an edge specialist. They just like food as a result of being edge, right? There's more light in those areas, and as a result, there's more food. Okay, so that's a biology principle tied in with a design principle. So this is mechanical. So when we're designing a bedding area on a property, think of an amoeba. It's not a perfect circle. It has odds and ends, right? It's, um, it's oddly shaped. It's nonlinear. And that irregular edge, what does that do? It creates more edge habitat. And as a result, there's more food. And as a result, there's more attra attractivity for the deer. Now that's an aspect of designing the bedding area. That's one aspect. There's, there's plenty of them, right. but it's thinking more in depthly about the design process. And I, I only bring that point up to think you need to start thinking differently about this. And you're not going to, again, you're not going to learn that on YouTube. Right. Paul, do you have any quite, you look like you're thinking really hard and dangerously smoke coming out of your ears. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, um, uh... I, I want to get into uh, 
like what what you have and I, and I missed a big section of this of this talk so uh and I'm, my internet's still kind of in and out so hopefully you guys got me but uh kind of like what what you hunt months i mean you've got these like really small properties so i mean at this point it's october 19th no one's changing the landscape that they have so i guess uh how, how, how do people maximize those small properties? Like if you've just gotten access to it or you've had minor successes in, in the past. So, I mean, you are like, Andrew, you, you live this every day. Yeah. And, and so at your house, at the properties that you have access to, um, you know, so John, I guess my question to you is, is when you go into a smaller property and what, what, what are we defining 30 acres and under? That's kind of what we, we had discussed. Yeah. And you know, like we were talking to do it in a successional state, I think makes. Well, I don't know if it makes it easier or not, John. You can tell me I'm I'm an idiot. That that wouldn't you won't hurt my feelings. But I look at some of these like basically you walk into a clean slate that's essentially either old ag land or you know just a pasture type of thing, which is one of the properties yeah. I I'm have near. Uh, and then I got you know another one that probably hasn't been touched realistically in 20 years so you've got scrub maples coming up and you might have one or two trees that are big enough to throw you know a a saddle in or whatever and then i know people that have 10 acres that are just it's full timber but you know ohio you know the midwest a lot of what we have especially in my mind these little properties you have to be able to utilize the neighboring properties and for what they have so all of that said back to like Paul's original question of if you start with a small property under 30 acres, let's start with that like base grassland, old ag land, whatever you want to call it. What? And and maybe you've got one tree to sit in that you're sitting up there right now at this time of the year. And every time you sit up there, you sit there and look and you're like, man, what can I do to this next year? What are some ideas that we, we might want to think about when it comes to that? Is that fair, Paul? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great, so Ohio and Midwest, right? So a lot of those areas, you know, are mixed ag, um, mostly ag, right? And that percentage obviously dictates what the limitation is on the landscape. The other problem with Ohio, at least my experience with Ohio, is there's areas that are the cover is so dense that they become inaccessible. So I've been on properties where you can't even walk through them. So if it's a grassland setting, its value degrades as the season progresses right? It's food availability and its source of cover is limiting, right? And as a result of that, um, the property becomes less productive. It just naturally becomes less productive. So the focus on a property like that, and, and it depends, like if you guys get snowstorms or, you know, sleet, ice, what have you, you know, a lot of the cover will start the lodge and it won't necessarily provide value in the landscape. So you kind of got to start there. Converting a field to being something productive um, really starts with building structure, uh, woody structure, any type of woody structure. Uh, one way to get that going is planning um, and then planning in an orchestration where you're going to get the quickest return. Now, I would say my favorite properties uh, that I've been on, uh, at least 30% of the property is shrubland. That's a limiting resource in our area. Now, in the Midwest, uh, you can create shrubland quite easily because of all the successional habitat. Not everything's being farmed, although in some areas the farming is expanded and there's no hedgerows and, you know, that's limited the uh, ecology benefits to the animals. So what I would do if I had a 30-acre property and it was grassland and I was set, setting up for scratch, 
Um, I am a huge proponent of uh, creating a lot of segregation and compartmentalization. Willows, switchgrass. That will build your structure within three years. Within three years, you can have shrubby cover and you can have seg segregation. Um, now the question is, how do you manage within those sectors? So think about a 30-acre property. Maybe you're blocking it off, right? Maybe you're making into quadrants. Maybe you're, depending on your axis, you're hunting one edge versus the other edge. And you're pulling deer to a certain location or you know edge so you can build some depth in that kind of cover. Um, what I would typically do is I would create, go back to your rule, irregular edges. So don't give them a line of sight that's significant. And you can define that. Maybe it's 40 yards, 60 yards, 100 yards, right? And then go back to the other principle of creating irregularities among that edge. Now, you can plant in irregular shapes. So switchgrass is a great example. Now, there's certain varieties of switchgrass that does better lodging than others. Uh, shelter is one of them. What's, uh, what's lodge, is, lodging? Uh, basically falling over, right? We want to make sure that the switchgrass stays erect. Uh, if you've ever used miscanthus grass, okay, miscanthus grass is rhizomial. It, it does a great job. Uh, uh, apparently, it's sterile. Uh, I've used it on a lot of properties. Um, it's, it's a non-native plant, uh, but it does really, really good of creating structure. And it'll create, because the quality of soils in some of these Midwest states in a couple years, you can create bedding cover. And when snow hits, or ice hits that, that stuff bounces, you know, it basically falls down and then bounces right back up. Um, we get heavy snow loads here. So I focus on more woody and thermal uh, type, type environments or uh, uh, types of plants. So phase two is integrating maybe additional plants. Um, so you want to think about creating structures. Those are typically not edible plants. Uh, switchgrass is probably the best example of that. They're all perennial, um, right? They're perennials, though. It's not something yeah, yeah. like sorghum, which will give you that that structure upright real fast. But that's you know annual one and done, right? Yeah, and, and there's no reason you can't integrate you know an annual plant into that equation to help create movement and flow. And um, a lot of times, like when I'm designing a hunting property, I start first with okay, does this cover provide for me? Uh, is it escape cover? Is it uh, thermal cover? Is it uh, bedding cover? And they're all different. There's categorizations to cover and then okay so in this bedding area am i giving them the ability to bound out of that in in a easy manner so they can escape to the next bedding area or to flee the country they want to feel the freedom of having the ability to escape an area so you have to think about that in the design process a lot of people don't think about that um, so basically we've got this 30 acre property and we've built some structure with switchgrass and willow plantings and i think that's where i would start on most of these properties um, and if it's really, really dry, um, you know, you may pick some like uh, white pines. Those are pretty predominant in certain areas. Um, any type of pine does well in those areas. In our areas with the screening, I use a lot of Norway spruce. They're non-native. Or I'll use white spruce, uh, one of the two. Um, and I'll create those in pockets and clumps. And then make sure that there's enough space between those plantings where I can build kind of that early successional habitat. But I'll keep that where I can manage all that in different age classes. So there's another strategy of managing and maintaining different plants in those areas, if that makes sense. So to somebody who, who's not super into, you know, agriculture or any of that kind of stuff, when you talk switchgrass, miscanthus, uh, the willows, pines, yep. now 
There's only one person I know who goes out and collects, well, there's probably more than one, collects acorns to attempt to start them in his backyard. But how are these people coming by these plants? Are they out there planting this stuff by seed? Is it something going to your nursery? One of the things is when I look at putting trees on my property, I'm like, I'm not going to go spend $200 on a tree at the nursery so the little forky can come in and rub the hell out of it, right? Like, I, where do people start looking for plant material for larger properties? So um, you can look on the side of the road uh, if we're trying to do cheap options. So there's no reason you can't go. Well, I was in Wisconsin last year and everyone, you know, totes like, oh, Red Osier Dogwood, you know, it's like the most favored food. You know, I see people selling it online and, you know, you're in Wisconsin, they, they do um, a roadside screening and they use that because it, it's, uh, it does really well in their, in their conditions. Their soil, uh, at least in those areas, you know, uh, it helps uh, propagate that plant. Um, but I would recommend, uh, you know, willows is great. Go to uh, an area where maybe you have a neighbor or maybe it's on the side of the road and, and go ahead and start cutting the willows. And once you have a plant like that, all you need to do is it, it propagates really easy by cuttings. Cut it, stick it in the ground, and, and there you go. Um, a lot of these plants we don't think about. Um, you can just, um, you know, that you can root them um, and then stick them in the ground, or you can just shove them in the ground and they'll grow. I mean, some deciduous trees like uh, sugar maples is a good example. That you're unable to do that with that particular plant species, but some other ones you can, particularly most of the dogwood species you can. So uh, that's a good way to get yourself going. Switchgrass, you can have a backpack sprayer and a hand seeder. And, um, you know, I've planted plenty of, I, I don't have a no-till drill. I've planted plenty of areas with just, just those two those two items. Wait a um, second. Probably good to mow an area and get rid of some of the vegetation, uh, but you can use a, a wee whacker as well. What is the backpack spray? Are you spraying Roundup or something to knock down the vegetation? And you just hand seed the switchgrass behind. Yeah, it? so what? I, yeah, so with switch switchgrass, I'll start the process in July. I'll set back those areas just to eliminate weed, weed seed, and then as long as I'm knocking down the the warm season grasses or warm season plants, and then come I guess fall period, I'm going to work with that next gradient. Usually the cool season, I'm going to I'm going to take those out. I may have two two sessions of spraying a, a generic herbicide like Roundup. Um, it could be a grass select herbicide like 2EC. Um, and, and then in addition to that, you know, I will use atrazine uh, or cymazine for people that don't have a pesticide license in those early April, May months. Um, after I broadcast, and I'll just broadcast that seed usually in March, you want six to eight weeks for the seed coating to break down. Uh, it's, it needs to break down uh, based on the weather conditions. Now in your areas, I'd probably put it down in January in the Midwest. In my areas, there's a lot of freeze thaw, a little bit more than you guys. So March, April's fine. I would say middle of April, you're getting way too late. I would say the end of March is probably ideal. I do not apply switchgrass seed into standing snow. Um, you get a lot of runoff and distribution of the seed incorrectly. So you want to make sure you have bare ground when you do that. So that's another contingency and your success rate will go up. So hopefully that helps people. And since we're on this topic, um, and I think we might have talked about, we had Mitch on one time talking to him. For those who are not familiar with, with applying herbicides, Roundup or glyphosate, 41% standard stuff. A lot, I mean, I, I think you can still get it in the stores. That does not have a residual, right? So like, I know you were saying yeah. spray in, in July, spray again, and then you're going to come back and plant in, in the following March. Is that what you're, you're yep. saying? But if you needed to, that's one of those ones that you can spray it, and literally you can you could seed the same day, 
as long as you don't have any of these extended control products in that concentrate. I just like to clarify. I get that question all the time. So, sorry, that's part of my job and stuff is uh, I get that one often. But Yeah, some, some, some plants have plant back periods where you have to worry about the residual herbicide. Um, you know, I guess the strategy I just came up with, it, it's not really the case. And you don't have to start it in July. You can you can kill those cool season grasses and, and be off and running. Um, in fact, I mean, I've done all different different things. I've, I've killed switchgrass seed, you know, n- maybe not on a purpose, but I've pushed the limits. Where I've sprayed, you know, in the spring months, glide just before it's going to germinate, just to give myself an extra push. And, you know, in my area... Um, depending on your qual- quality of soil is, is weighed heavily in, in the property design, uh, you know, process. And so if you, you got bad soil, you may not get the growth that you necessarily hope for. My switchgrass at this point on my property is probably, hell, it does awesome on my property based on the type of soil. I, I bet you it's seven feet tall. You know, it's year three. It's super dense. Deer don't really walk through it. So I use it for buffer zones. So I eliminate deer movement with switchgrass. People think it's like the best form of cover. Um, it's really, it's really not a good form of cover. It's a good form of screening, um, and there's also a thermal benefit to it, uh, particularly uh, this time of year. Um, if you have pockets of cover within switchgrass, um, they'll be highly utilized this time of year, especially in a breeding season. John, I, quick question on. I, I see on Instagram a lot of uh, a company selling chestnut trees for mass production. Is that a good option for a smaller property? You know, and, and it, it, you know, there, there are a lot of their ads are like, well, you'll have, you'll have good mass producing trees in three years. Is that, is that realistic? And is that, is that kind of a good option if you're looking to kind of concentrate your movement on food sources? Yeah. Um, I did a whole podcast on chestnuts on my, on my, uh, thing. So I would ask people to listen to that about specifics, but when I'm designing a hunting property and I talk about how to design around chestnuts, I, most of the chestnut varieties that, that I've dealt with drop in, uh, September. Now, you know, so that kind of is an amiss, like where you're not getting the benefit of it. However, however, I, when I'm designing a hunting property, especially a small property, like we're talking about, I will, within the center of an open area or within an opening, I will plant chestnut trees within an opening, within a bedding area. Um, you'll see a lot of my, if, you know, you were to see my property designs, you would see that in certain properties. And the reason why that is, is the timing, like you think about crop rotation and when they're harvesting crops, that end of September period is really kind of that transitional period. Um, and that's when the mass producing is that it's, it's, it's pinnacle. So it kind of overlaps. So when I'm thinking like a Venn diagram, I'm thinking of everything dying around me and how my property, my small property is picking up deer because of the available food. And that happens to be a great resource. There's a problem with that, that tree though. That tree takes a long time to have significant production. You know, if you produce 50 pounds of chestnuts, actual chestnuts, within 15 to 20 years, you're doing well. Wow. So you can listen to anybody talk about, you know, that's the next greatest thing. It's great because it's an annual producer. And I have them in my yard. I've got a 18-year-old tree in my yard. I got 35-year-old trees down the, down the road. And, 
you know, you can see the production volume, but it takes a while to get there. So it's got to be a long-term thing. Guys, on small properties, we're dealing with 50 inches and down. So anything 50 inches and down that adds value, that's how we're categorizing quality. You know, that, that just seems more sensible. What's up in the sky is uh, just nice to look at. So we've got to be a little more considerate of what's, what's kind of at our fingertips, you know, chest down. So let's let's pick apart a uh, a small property, uh, if you will, in the in okay. the with with the thought of I want to be successful in shooting a buck on that on that property. So if I go into a small property that I've got access to, twenty acres, uh, or, or, well, rather when when you go to a small property from a hunting perspective, not changing what you you know um, you know what's there, but just kind of like maximizing right now what's there now so what are you looking for to kind of like pick apart that property uh you know for for deer movement for i was really interested when you said the three types of cover and and i wrote two of them down the third one i missed uh escape cover thermal cover and what was the third one that you talked about bedding cover bedding cover thank you uh are, are those kind of the things that you're looking for if you're going in from a hunting perspective on like a smaller property yeah yeah so so let's go back to the original of, okay, we've got a smaller property. Um, what's the vegetation like? Uh, we talked about, you know, a successional stage where your grassland's grown up into maybe kind of a shrubland setting with some small pioneer species. And, you know, you can find some hunting locations out of it. Likely you're in a box blind or hunting out of the ground. You get skyline pretty easy out of a saddle, like you're talking about um, with it, with small poultries. So I would first start saying, okay, what's my most beneficial? I mean, here's a good question for you guys. What would you think would be the most beneficial vegetation type on a small landscape like that? What I think I might have already said the answer. What what vegetation type would you prefer? A lot of people say swamp. Uh, they would like wetland areas, but that's not the answer. Any any idea what that might be? Like your shrubs? Is that what you? The sh- the, yeah, the shrub, shrub, that's shrubland. What, that's- yeah, that's what I was going to say, the stuff that you and I can't walk through. Yeah, but the, so then the next question is on your property, can you can you access it? Uh, so if it's inaccessible and it's not a food source, like autumn olive is all over the place in your areas. Um, if it's not really a food source, then does it provide the value that you want? It provides great cover, but it doesn't provide a food value. So um, you might want to remove some portions of that to create more space. Now, the next thing is creating space. So let's think about like the size of an animal and it needs to eat vegetation, right? Uh, And some of that vegetation is going to be forbs, naturalized or planted, whatever the case may be. Uh, Minimal qualities, they eat grass, you know, it's less than 10% of their diet. But if you think about like the actual structure, what's the distance between this bush and that bush? Can something fit in there? I mean, we, you have to think like that. Um, I've been in dogwood thickets that you can't even walk through. Yet there's a tree and that tree creates a shade. And as a result, the deer bed underneath that one single tree. Well, we want 10 or 20 or 30 of those in a region. And it's full of us, foolish of us to just think shrubs and grassland would be the only thing we want in the landscape. There's a good example where we want some cover. Now it starts to get cold, right? Is there a thermal aspect of this? Maybe we want to put some conifers in within these bedding areas. So now you've got a thermal benefit and thermal could be early and late season. And, and now we're starting to build something. And uh, to your question earlier, you know, each one of these elements stacking it up 
it creates this kind of ultimate situation because you've got so much diversity. No one else has that variability on their property. Um, and you could take a forested property and turn it into field, right? You could cut every single tree down. But it makes it a lot harder to hunt when it's in a situation like that. So you're picking and choosing naturally what wants to be there and either amplifying it or changing it. So you can change it by cutting, creating disturbance, or plant other plants in those areas. Those are your two options. People make this really, really complicated, and it's not complicated, right? There's a simple step to making sure you can optimize a property, if that makes sense. So on that mid-range successional one, I obviously say makes more space, makes paths and all that kind of stuff. From an yeah. idiot's perspective, are you just saying, like, let's run a bush hog through there that's eight foot wide, give you a path, and throw some clover down in the path? And so then you're adding a food source and making a space? Is that is it that, that simple? It can be, can be. absolutely. Um, in some cases, it's putting less preferred food on the interior and more preferred food on the exterior. And you're pulling deer to a location. Think about food plots as a path. Don't think a path or a destination. Um, don't think of them necessarily as a complete resource because again, most food plots don't aren't in the form of cover. So as a resource to me, if I'm weighing a resource like sorghum is a great example. If you're putting sorghum into a food plot, it creates cover and food, right? That to me is an ultimate plant. Even better than that is corn. Problem with corn is corn's hard to grow. So you want something that can do okay in those most of those areas, and, and sorghum does does pretty well as a, as a good example. Um, you know, deer will strip the leaves off and they'll eat the heads off, and they'll eat them. You know, at, at end of uh, September, uh, October, November, right? Most of my sorghum is depleted at this point on my property but those are the things you think about so you you could take a big space and make it smaller and you could do an annual planting right to create screening like you talked about earlier with like a sorghum or a, you know a sorghum hybrid and some of these hybrids the deer don't eat so you got to know what plants do on the landscape and what will be eaten and what won't be eaten, if that makes sense is there anything you can do on these first two stages to help to get to that full timber process outside of like planting all the acorns that you picked up off the golf course when you were out last, like I do, um, that will be there ready for you in a hundred years. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, can you bolster that to, to eventually get you some good sitting trees and, and all that kind of stuff and, and good mass producing, or is it literally like, I, I, I get how plants grow, but it, it's just, we just got, you just got to wait and then, or go look for a new property. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's nice when you have a property that has crab apple trees on it and hedgerows or, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's success enough where there's, it's at a stage where some of those trees are in the 30 to 50 year cycle. Um, a lot of those trees like crab apple trees, once they hit the 56 year cycle, they're, they're pretty much kaput. So you're kind of walking into a property and looking at your resources and saying, you know, mass production right now, if you have mass producing trees, you're, you're going to win the game. Um, you know, they haven't switched really, really hard to woody material yet, but they will. I mean, we're just talking weeks from where they're really transitioning to woody material. So I would say if it was me, um, some of the areas where I had the best soils, I would concentrate those items. So if you're going to buy apple trees or crab apple trees or pears, um, you know, co-locate those in areas that have really good quality soil. Another strategy is trying to direct water so there's more water resources in those areas. So not only do they have like um, 
for some reason, when I've been in Ohio, I don't know why this is, is there are so much naturalized quality plants on the side of the road. Like, I feel like red clover grows like everywhere in your areas. I mean, just it pat. So clover nitrogen fixation plant, you know, it's really good. It, it integrates well in those areas. So you've got, you know, put in clover, right? A nitrogen fixing plant is going to help uh, a, a plant that can utilize like a deciduous tree. So put in clover, redirect water sources so they have available water, and then you'll get higher production values out of those particular trees. Um, that's one way to do it. You could have a lot of fast growing trees. You know, willows was the example I brought up earlier. Willows create a great structure. And by the way, you cut them down, they coppice, they grow into a bushier plant, and now you have all these cuttings you can place all over the place. And within three years, you have this great, awesome bush that in some cases, depending on the variety, don't get eaten. And I think that's how I'd create this forest setting um, quicker. Um, but, you know, everything takes a lot of time. And in most instances to create a, you know, decent forest, if you're, you're looking at 30 years. And it, one of the things I do is I'll go to properties and it, like, I don't know, I'll tell you, I got clients all over the place. I've got clients in these really sandy areas. White pine grows like weeds up there. And so I can rip the white pines out in hundreds, throw them in the back of a trailer and go plant them. And they didn't cost me a dime. And they're already three, four foot trees. I've picked up trees on the side of the road, like I said earlier. And, you know, I mean, I know that sounds a bit unprofessional, but I'm just like everybody else. Uh, and I'm an opportunist in some capacity. So I want to make sure that, you know, I can find stuff at a reasonable price and I'm not spending a lot of money. That's, that's good. Um, so I got one question on this these first two tiers and I've fought with it for years, uh, in different capacities, but honeysuckle, uh, you know, it is great for creating that thicket that they just seem to dig down into. But what is your, what are your thoughts on that one? Because I, in my mind, it's just too, too invasive. All right. So in forested land, um, I'm a bit opposed to it because I can create similar structure with, uh, you know, resident trees that I decide to cut, either hinge cutting or using the tops of those trees. And then within that, to your point earlier, I can create, um, I can plant within those tree tops, various species, oaks is the one example. Now, if it's littered with honeysuckle, uh, I'm typically going to have preference to move those area, remove those trees. Now, in my area, buckthorn is pretty prevalent. So I strategize around what to do with that plant as well. But in field settings, you know, if it was me and I was trying to build structure, I would keep layers of it. Um, it's going to continue to propagate across your landscape regardless. So you'll con- it'll continue to be a battle if you rid yourself of it or not, because it's it's in the resident population of species. However, it's an awesome form of cover that if it gets too thick, it tends to dry out the areas and its, to- its toxins eliminate plants around it. So it'll grow kind of by itself. So if it was me... I would remove inside out. I would start in the interior and I would start to expunge that plant, particular plant. And I would consider replacing it. Um, I did a podcast on uh, all the species, uh, all the different invasive species that are most prevalent and what plants to replace, um, you know, various plants like honeysuckle. Dogwood's a great example. Gray dogwood is a great example uh, in my areas. So um, look at that particular plant and find an alternative. 
Now that might cost you some money. So you've got to think about the money time aspect of it. But if you're going to get rid of a bush and you're going to try to another, grow another bush in its place, you're going to wait about seven years, depending on what type of species you plant on average, five to seven years, depending on quality soil. So every plant that you cut, you've got to figure out what, what's going to grow there next. And a lot of times it's not going to be something you want, or it might be for that matter. And so you've got to kind of look at this landscape and diagnose, if I cut that, what's going to happen? Um, and so sometimes it's just playing with that and seeing what ends up happening. Do uh, some experiments in different areas. And, and I love it when I go to properties because I'm, I'm looking at what the neighbors are doing. Okay, that happened there. That, and I'm just observing. Okay, this is what happened to neighbor. Let's do some of the things that they're doing or not. And, and usually, you know, we're considering what's going on around us. And that was probably a question you had earlier. Um, so so. Uh, just real quick on the, on the shrub side of things, you're talking about dogwoods plant, planting those. You have two, like one or two more that are just like, bam, bam. You got to have these in Ohio. If, you, if you're going to bring them in, I, when I was in school, you know, viburnums was, was a, a major category of native plants that um you know to ohio is that are viburnum something that might might fit in there in that that layer absolutely absolutely viburnum spice bush comes to mind that's a good one um any of the hedge plants like oh um you guys can have butterberry in your areas because you're a little bit warmer it doesn't do well up here but um you know cranberry bush uh they're there's a whole host of bushes that you can have. And so with my clients, a lot of times what I do is I'll look at their landscape and look at what's naturalized in the landscape. And if we're in a situation like you're saying, I'll give them five to 10 variety of plants that they can choose. And in this soil type, this aligns with this particular plant, um, whether we're in sandy areas or clay areas, kind of give them the options so they can think, okay, what, and this happens usually in non-forested settings more than likely. Um, but what can I put on the landscape to, to, uh, to benefit, you know, the deer? And we, we usually we start with non-edible plants. Spice bush is a good example. Um, and then we're thinking about, is that naturalized in the landscape? And as a result of that, you know, what's that going to look like? Do you ever throw some just complete oddball in there, like an arborvitae or something that, you know, the deer love to eat and, uh, it doesn't really fit, but man, that would be, uh, kind of that little dessert for them in there. <laughs> I've had some people ask me to do some, yeah, like, like that white cedar, right? That arborvitae, whatever, you know, th those are preferential plants that actually the deer will eat them, you know, and then basically they create this, this, you know, the, the whole plant skin from the bottom up and it creates a little bit of cover up top. So if you put a bunch of those together, it's kind of like what a cedar thicket looks like. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the right areas that can be valued for, for some cover. And then what you need is you need a layer below that windbreak so that's where switchgrass comes comes in handy uh, i've had some clients actually plant those and cage them and then open them up during deer season or oh you know and it's just it's incredible to think about i had one client that planted a field of hostas like i they were hammering the hostas and i, I saw them propagating hostas in large quantities and fencing them off like, i tell you i've i've seen the most strangest things but i mean hey you know what works works and even from fencing strategies, you know, people instead of caging the trees, they'll take a fence, they'll cut it, and you know, basically cut a slit in it, put it around the tree, and raise it up, almost like you're putting a pallet. And the tree grew through a pallet. Well, this fence sits up like kind of um, in a dome shape, 
and it goes up and it protects the stem. The deer won't walk through the fencing and then you didn't have the cage around the tree. And that might be easier to prune. Like there's little things that I've seen over the years with all these different clients, like, and they're really smart, you know? I saw one client the other day for their steps, they were using chicken wire, but the way that they uh, put this chicken wire in their steps, it was much better than anything I'd ever seen before to climb up their steps into their box plant. It was super quiet, it was on wood. And just the way they secured it, I was like, man, that's a hundred times better than using those, you know, sandpaper strip pads. We just, you pick up all these little things from these clients. People are pretty ingenious. Uh, That's yeah. true. Um, and there's something you said in there I was going to pick up. But anywho, uh, you've got the last part of that kind of successional thing. You've got a big timber forested area. What are some things that you could consider doing throughout the year that might help to make that property more deer hunting friendly? Yeah, so on a forested ground, which, you know, I deal with forested ground pretty much most of the time. Um, field, Like I said earlier, field conversions are way more work and time. Um, so, if you know, it's a lot easier starting with, I think, the structure and then removing some of that structure in increments. Um, so one of the simple strategy, which people just don't pay attention to, and I, I feel like it's such a valued thing, is um, – like right now, I was telling you earlier when we first got out, I was talking about hunting and my my Maverick style. And tonight, all those deer are headed down right towards that way to nibble on all those tops that were cut today by the logger. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if I could catch them back in transition tomorrow morning, you know, I might be in the money if I hit that bedding area up again. But it's this continual natural disturbance or human disturbance of knocking down trees. I save trees to knock down all season long. So I'm, I killed a buck, a big buck last year, and I cut his bedding area in, uh, I think it was right around August 29th, September 1st. I cut his bedding area the month before I killed that deer just to kill that deer. And creating, you know, those treetops, those, those treetops will be more preferred at that time of year than any other food source, you know, comparable to acorns, you know, white oak acorns, um, that food source will outcompete, you know, those, those tops, those leaves, the nutritional value of those is far greater because by the way, at that time of year, all the forb content, particularly in Ohio is a good example. You've had your drought, you've had your summer drought and everything's starting to decline in quality. Well, guess what? You put a treetop on the ground, every deer and its brother is going to come there. Let's go into late season. So we go through the season. We're probably not running a chainsaw during hunt season. If you are, I think you're a little crazy. But after season, you start putting tops in the ground. You start creating that a value and attraction deer. And that starts building an interest around your property. And all of a sudden, you're sucking in all the deer in your property. And it just it becomes a magnet. So I say the strategy is cutting trees in increments. I call it variable thinning. Saving trees to cut and cutting the right trees at the right time. And that's with, with some, you know, with some direction, that's not hard to do. And you're helping the forest all in concert with that. Cause then, then next spring you've opened up a canopy for light and, and new f- things to come up through the, the ephemerals in the spring and then another layer of vegetation, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're working with the, the naturalized plants and giving them an opportunity to, you know, propagate and, and be more prevalent. And now, now it's a question of maintenance management. Who dies and who lives, right? Those 
those next strategies is what, what do I do next? You know, I keep going back to the fact that like I'm a 48 acre property. I'm no different from you. Uh, I've got 18 more acres than you. Yahoo. Um, and, you know, if you saw what I started with and my largest buck was a two and a half year old 70 inch deer. I, nobody manages. There's not one like within probably 10 square miles. There's not anybody manages deer around me like nobody. And, you know, to steal deer, I'm stealing deer all season. Now, all of a sudden I'm getting more bucks and more bucks and more bucks and more bucks. And they know that the quality habitat uh, it becomes a deer suck. And the deer suck is not by happenstance. It's because of the effort applied. And again, four years later, I killed 150 inch deer, which by the way, is an anomaly in my area. Now, there, 150 inch deer doesn't exist. Um, so you can create, and that deer wasn't on the property originally. So you can change deer's core areas based on all these improvements. And by the way, some of these improvements can make them more daylight active as well. And I've seen that. Now, some, some deer are not always as daylight as you hope they'd be. But a lot of deer will become because of you know the way you design the property and set it up. So there's a lot you can do with a small property and make it productive. And I'm that's why my story, like anybody's story who has small property, that they make it make it productive. Um, and they can do it. You know, I've killed three bucks, 130, 138, 152 in four years on my property. And no big bucks were ever killed on the property previously. So start doing the math there. That's just not by chance. And I'm not. I'm not like this super amazing hunter that just, you know, is just, you know, astonishing with my skill level. I'm a good hunter. I'm not, you know, I'm disciplined, uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm fallible. Like I explained tonight. That's why I want to start up that story like that. Oh man. Okay. This might be blasphemy, but I, I have it written down here and it might be blasphemy in your book. Ohio's a bait sure. state. Okay. Is there any place no. where we can, could, should utilize baiting on these small properties in the short term, in the long term? Obviously, legally, uh, and if it gets outlawed someday, then we are going to throw this whole part of the conversation out. But is there a place for that or no in your mind? I think so. I, 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 I like baiting. Um, I like baiting from the sense that, you know, it, it is supplemental. Um, I think it's overutilized by most of your hunters um, across various states that allow it. Um, and I, I think um, deer have to search less as a result of that. And that, that has a tendency to make deer less daylight active. Um, they do not have, they get high quality food in, in areas and they do not have to work to find high quality food. So it's counterproductive. So I, I hear what you're saying. Now I would bait, I would bait for inventory. I would bait for supplemental feeding, um, knowing that you may be in a situation where you have a, a, a small volume of food. Um, but I would bait in areas that are already destined as destination food sources. And I would try to isolate those bait uh, areas to maybe the center of those. So think of like a big food plot, two acres, three acres, and put all those bait stations right in the center. And try to even segregate them a little bit so there's distance between each one of those bait stations. Um, you know, I don't know what the regulations will be over time in some of these states, but if it does get banned, it gets banned. But then you have data in a destination area where deer are congregating anyhow, and you're just amplifying their movement. It's just another way to amplify their movement. And you're typically not hunting them on those destination food sources. You're hunting them back in the transitional areas 
um, or somewhere in between. And again, that food source is being utilized at certain times. And they don't like to walk out in those big fields during daylight. And so think about that in your placement of, of you know, baiting stations or, or what have you. Um, but yeah, that would be my overarching strategy. Uh, we can't bait in New York or Pennsylvania or some of the areas that I typically work in, but you know, that's, it is interesting when, when you can. Paul, you got anything else? There's, there's some guys on Twitter that are real entertaining here in Ohio. And, and one of their sayings is outbait your neighbor. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I always yeah. find that. I always find that funny. Outbait. Out. What's your, what's, your I ask you guys, what's your favorite bait, right? That's the next question. What's your favorite combination? So I, unfortunately or fortunately however you want to look at it i hunt all public i don't have access to private property so i am a no bait guy unfortunately so i uh, always Sorry. throw a salt block out and then um or mineral block i guess and uh usually it was just corn now this year i got suckered into trying some lucky buck and threw that on there and i'll tell you what i don't know if it's the smell of that stuff or what but those things it was like an hour later, the thing was covered in deer. I was like, holy crap. But I also don't have any big yeah. antlers on my wall, so let's not take Andrew's uh, ideas into consideration. <laughs> You've got some big antlers on your wall. Give yourself a little <laughs> more credit. So, <laughs> Paul, you got anything else? We'll let John go. I know he's probably tired and hungry. And no, I've got else. I've got a list of stuff that I wrote down that I want to buy when I buy a you know, a four acre piece of property. So this <laughs> so, is good, man. Yeah, John, this was great. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, I, I would I would just tell everyone, start small. You know, and and you know, I'm not I don't mean to put a plug in for you know my podcast and I, I appreciate you guys having me on. Um but you know that podcast, Whitetail Landscapes, maximize your hunt. I mean it's it is the top deer managers in the country. Um and I'll probably add to the list this year I got a couple more guys that I want to get on, but I mean, it's, it's nice because everyone has a different perspective. You know, my system isn't the same as Jake Ellinger's system. Isn't the same as Mark Drury's system. Isn't the same as Todd Shippey or any of these people that do this professionally. We all have our unique experiences and it's taking from that podcast and, and learning, you know, whether it's Todd's idea of uh, how to create more, um, interest in a, in a bedding area to mine is how to layer bedding areas to the juries of how to time your improvements and changes. It's, it's just thinking more uh, holistically, but also having that practical application side of it. I mean, you know, this from the horticultural side, you know, you can, you can go gangbusters on planning stuff. The question is, is it going to get you anywhere? And that trial and error um, is worth it in some capacity, but you could also learn from our podcast and that, that was the whole benefit. It provides education to people. So I don't mean to plug my business, but plug away, man, you know, plug away, yeah, plug away, you know, yeah. listen to the podcast. I, I think it's, it's a good podcast and uh, you know, I've enjoyed producing it and, and being a part of it. And it, it, the nice part, it isn't my goodness. is isn't all about me blabbing on here about strategy. I mean, I know I dumped on you guys today, but I think it kept it pretty simple. You know, I want people to take some of those basic fundamental designs I mean, my goal is when I leave a client's property, they do not have to watch a spit of YouTube again. They've got a plan, they can execute, and they don't have to worry about this analysis paralysis or just having so much information they don't know where to go. And this is really simple. We make it hard. We're the problem, right? Because we get 
well, maybe I need to do this greatest and latest thing. And, and just one thing isn't, isn't your save all. It's small things that add up into big solutions. That's, that's how, that's how my business kind of functions and operates. And, you know, Awesome. John, where can people find you on Instagram or other social medias and stuff? Yeah, you could just search my name, John Teeter or Whitetail Landscapes. Um, you know, I, I think I have a couple slots in 2023 if anybody wants any client work done. I, like I said, I work in Ohio. I'm going out to Ohio next week for a client. Uh, but if you're, you know, you're looking, uh, if you're looking for any work, you know, uh, please get a hold of me. I travel um, and, uh, you know, more than happy to help people. Um, it, it likely to be in 24 at this point in 2024, but you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to help people and, um, and I appreciate you guys having me on tonight. And, uh, I know we were supposed to do this a while ago. I know this probably some of this stuff is boring because people want to get into hunting season, but listen, all these improvements, you're sitting in your tree stand, sit there and start to think about, well, what's not working on my property? Why is my hunting not productive? Why have I not killed by now? I mean, you should measure your success in days that you've hunted. Uh, the less amount of days that you've hunted, that builds into efficiency factor that says, hmm, I know what I'm doing here. I put more time into the off season. If you're taking 25 days off a year to hunt, I think that's a bad thing because I would have taken 25 or 20 of those 25 and I'd put them into my habitat work and spent five days hunting. I want to be done. I don't want to be grinding, you know? Uh, so I think people that love to grind, that's one thing. But every time you step in the woods, you're degrading your property. Trust me. Uh, no property is designed well enough to not get caught on it. And uh, they're smelling you, whether you're there or not there. The deer know they're being hunted. So the least amount of time you can be on your property, the better. The more time you can be into working on the habitat, the better. Wonderful. John. That's great. That's a great point. Appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for your time. Have a great night, man. See you guys. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man. Bye.